This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Urban living will be a reality for most people in the not-too-distant future. Eighty percent of the world's population will live in cities by 2080. That means planners will have to grapple with population growth, affordability, even food production. To prepare, Denver city leaders have turned to something unexpected. This is Bach's E minor fugue from the Well-Tempered Clavier. Bach's idea was to tune notes in a way that created harmony across musical scales. It revolutionized musical composition. But what does that have to do with city planning? A lot, says urban planner Jonathan F.P. Rose. He's worked with Denver on a number of revitalization projects, including the Denver Dry Goods Building downtown. His new book is called The Well-Tempered City. Rose joins me from New York. Welcome to the program. Good morning. In your book, you write about harmonizing cities and turn to Bach for inspiration. Why? The um, issue that our our cities face a vast number of issues from climate change, population growth, uh, gentrification. Denver's, for example, is doing it fantastically well in terms of job growth, et cetera, but it's also um, creating larger issues of, of income inequality, et cetera. We're seeing all these issues and the solutions require a vast integration. Um, for example, the, the issues of um, income inequality require a superb education system. They require a better health care system. They require affordable housing, mass transit. These all need to be tied together. And we do not currently have a framework that effectively does tie them together. So as I was writing the book to really try and put these pieces together, I, I was searching for a metaphor. And the metaphor of, of the temperament system that unleashed Bach was an incredible one. Prior to temperament, so temperament happened around 1700 in uh, Western Europe, each uh, key, musical key, was tuned slightly differently so you could not go from key to key to key. Bach had an amazing vision, which was to um, in, to capture the harmony of the universe, the, architect, the vast architecture he saw of creation, and express it in music on earth. And the separation of keys was a limitation for him. When temperament came around, it was a new tuning system that allowed um, keys to all be tied together, to move from key to key to key. And there was also new technology, which was the clavier, the forerunner of the piano. All of a sudden, he had a new operating system in tuning, a new technology, and putting them together, he was able to transform the capacity of music to express a much broader range of, of thought and also to harmonize. This struck me as a fantastic metaphor because we do have new technologies and new operating systems, and they do have the potential to become great integrators, and we do need to harmonize and move our cities towards more common objectives. And typically, a city planner works within a set of ideas including land use, utilities, housing, transportation. How do you think they should approach their master plans? So those are all very important elements. Those are not going away. Those are critical things. But those are the um, – think of them as the bones of the body. Those are the pieces by which we get it done. Uh-huh. What's missing is vision. We really need to start with a vast vision of what we want our city to be. So what do we want Denver and Colorado Springs and Boulder and the other – Fort Collins and our other cities in the Rocky Mountain, you know, in, in Colorado? What do we – how do we, by 2050, if we see all the things that are happening, the, the trends of population growth and climate change and income inequality, and by the way, automation is coming and that is going to eliminate a huge number of jobs, we can see these trends coming. 
Land use is not a it is an essential part of the solution, but it's not sufficient. So we need a large vision for where we want to go, how we want to solve these problems, and then we need to use the tools of infrastructure investment and land use decisions and regulations and incentives to move us towards the vision. What are the few uh, well-tempered cities around the world that that you think are doing things well, and why do you consider them so well-tempered? So there's no perfect city, but many cities have components that, that contribute to te- temperament. And by the way, I when I look at best practices throughout the world, one of the ones I call upon is the uh, fantastic uh, multi-district expansion of RTD in the Denver metro areas it is a very good integrating effort and took uh, 52, as you know, um, uh, political constituencies to come together to agree to do such a thing. That's a great... So if temperament is getting different components to work together, that's a fantastic example, as, by the way, is also the scientific and cultural district tax. But let me give you an example. Um, uh, Singapore is an island city that gets its water from Malaysia under a 100-year contract that expires in 2160. And I'm sorry, 2060, and they don't want to have some other nation controlling their water supply. So they said, how can we become water independent before that? So first of all, they implemented water conservation at the building level, um, and they use a third of the water that we do in the United States. People take showers and drink coffee, and they they just use water wisely. The second thing is they said, we need more land to have more reservoirs so that we can capture rainwater, And we want to create a greener city, so we want to have lots of green space. And the way to do that is we're going to be a much denser city. And we want to grow by, by the way, 25% of our population increase. Mm -hmm. To do that, we need taller buildings, more mixed use, more mixed income. By the way, they solved their racial issues essentially by 1979, requiring every building has a mix of the local races so people all grew up together multi-generations. We're going to tie that together with an amazing mass transit system, and the transit system and walkability of these communities are going to be so good, we can reduce the number of roads, replace them with parks and open space, use it to absorb stormwater and build reservoirs. So it's all tied together towards a national purpose, which is water independence. But through Enid, they've created more livable communities, more walkable communities, more beautiful communities, and kind of with the nature woven inside them. And this seems like a, an idealistic approach to, to city planning and, and, and urban development. Uh, you were an undergraduate at Yale in the 70s, if I'm correct, and you began shaping these ideas there. How did cities approach urban planning at that time? Well, it was pretty much a disaster. Um, the, uh, this one back to 1948. So 1948, the end of World War II, there's a huge um, a crisis. All these soldiers come back from the war and there's not enough housing for them and they're starting families and... Um, and then, and Congress has a big debate as to what should be the housing policy. And deeply influenced by the Home Builders Association, the Mortgage Brokers Association, um, and others related to and the, the brokers, uh, America pushes for a affordable. I'm sorry, a a single family housing program, VA program, et cetera, highway expansion. We build vast suburbs, and for the cities, they say we're going to build public housing. And it is only going to be for low-income people to have no income mixing. And so what happened from the 40s to the 60s is we built incredible slums in many of our cities in these modern tower-in-the-park standalone buildings that were monocultures of dysfunction – that became monocultures of dysfunction. 
And so by the 1970s uh, – then by the way, in 1970, there's a federal court uh, ruling that said that schools had to integrate and uh, white families uh, fled to the suburbs to get away from the integration of the schools. And so um, these two policies you saw um, lead to uh, the really decline of the city that began in the early 70s and went through the 90s. And that's when you began to think about the, these ideals, it seems. And so back then I was thinking, this is not working. What is the way to work? Actually, in 1974, I read an amazing book called Design with Nature by somebody named Ian McHarg, who is a professor of landscape architecture and regional planning at University of Pennsylvania. So when I graduated, I went to Penn to study with him to begin to try and understand how do we design cities with nature. So we really need to do two things with our cities. The first is that we must equalize the landscape of opportunity for all. And that means that every child in America, I believe, should have the same promise of, a, of the ability to make a great future for themselves. And that must start with a platform. For example, every school, therefore, must be equally as good. The health care system for every child must be equally as good. If you, if you lay that out, you can see what all the implications are. And the second is that we really be, 1970, we also passed NEPA, which is the federal environmental protection law from which state laws and all of our environmental protection structure comes. And it is a structure that is based on dividing things into components. It was actually designed by environmental laws to make lawyers to make it easier to sue about environmental actions. So it is the antithesis of a tempering system. It's a disintegrating system. So all these things happened in the 70s and what was very clear is we needed actually to move – we needed to find a planning tools that allowed us to integrate it. We needed a vision that could bring uh, social equity and justice back to our cities and we needed to create a platform of opportunity for all and entwine it with nature. And that's what I've been working towards for the rest of my life. You're tuned to Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with urban planner and author Jonathan F.P. Rose. His new book is called The Well-Tempered City. He says using the musical theories of Bach can help prepare cities for the future. Uh, Denver has been dealing with an affordable housing crisis and homelessness. There's a drastic need for more affordable housing. And while some developers have factored that type of housing in, others in Denver have not been so willing to do so. Uh, the developments you designed in New York City uh, embrace affordable housing. What has swayed developers to create affordable housing there? So uh, in New York City, we have a uh, we have had a program which, by the way, has fallen apart due to a dispute between our governor and mayor. It's about to be put back together, but at any rate, there was an eighty twenty program in which accompanied by something called a four twenty one a tax abatement, and the tax abatement was economically designed so that for the any builder of market rate and even luxury rental housing, it made more economic sense to have twenty percent of that be affordable because of the tax abatement. Um, and so we had a tremendous amount of the market rate housing that was built came along with affordable housing. That is not enough to solve our affordable. We have a huge affordable housing problem in New York. And in fact, every city has one. And so I really applaud Denver's uh, city council for recently passing um, a sales a, – a use of the uh, the tax uh, towards an affordable housing supplemental fund, which is really, really critical. And we need inclusionary zoning. We, so that's an example of inclusionary zoning. And we find that mixed income housing really, really works. 
By the way, our our company has built several projects in Denver. So we, for example, created something called Highland Garden Village in the old Elitch Amusement Park. That's right. And the multifamily rental projects there are mixed income. I... The cost of housing in Denver is also rising. As of September, median rent for a two-bedroom apartment in Denver was $1,800. And a report from the Brookings Institution says between 2000 and 2011, the number of poor residents in the suburbs of the nation's largest cities grew by 64 percent. That's more than twice the poverty rate growth in cities. Uh, growth rate in cities, rather. What's your take on that? It seems more people are leaving cities because they can't afford to live there as opposed to coming into cities, which is what you were saying in your book. So the population of cities is growing, but United States is a suburban nation. Hmm. So the Denver metro area, the, the population of the surrounding the city is larger than the population of the city itself. That's, what, by the way, why the RTD transit system is so fantastic because it allows people to live and make multiple choices about where they want to live and yet have the, be connected to the resources of the whole region. We do need to really think regionally. The problem is that cities are fairly well prepared to deal with poverty, not perfectly well prepared. Suburbs are less. They have fewer resources. They have fewer um, health care resources, social service resources, educational resources, et cetera. So as poverty grows in the suburbs, um, the other problem is that in cities, um, particularly transit-rich cities, uh, lower income wage workers can affordably and quickly get to work. When they live in the suburbs, they must use a car. Typically, it's an older car that tends to break down more. Uh, families, let's back up. For poor, there are 20 million American families today that spend more than 50% of their income on housing and more than 20% of their income on transportation. Hmm. And for many poor families living in the suburbs, that's 30%. They're spending 80% of their income on housing and transportation. It's completely not viable. That's why I say all these things are tied together. We need vast more resources to build affordable housing. We can't expect the market rate and inclusionary zoning to do it alone. It must be subsidized. There are, the key subsidies are federal and there are not enough of them. Cities such as Denver are taking steps to enhance those subsidies, which is a good thing. Many states are also taking steps to enhance those. But the affordable housing, by the way, must be near the mass transit so that it can relieve the transit cost of the burden from the low-income families so that they can more easily get to work, so they can earn more money so, so, and create a virtuous circle. And it all wraps together. Uh, briefly, in the last 30 seconds, uh, the divide between urban and rural populations is stark. We can see that in the past election. You see cities playing a much larger role in society as we move into the next century. How can cities and their populations bridge that divide? Uh, it's really we as a nation that have to bridge that divide. And I re believe we need to have an aspiration and a belief. St since the 1980s, probably – John Kennedy said, that's not what you can do for your nation, but what your nation can do for you. He, he – uh, I said that backwards. But he, he drew us together. We need leadership that actually makes us realize we are all in this together. We are all Americans. We should all be committed to be creating – a land of opportunity that is equal for all. That requires an amazing education system for all, better health care for all, better transportation for all, housing for all. And with the view that we are all in this together, I think we can solve these problems. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Jonathan F.P. Rose is an urban planner and author of The Well-Tempered City. Find a short video about the book and a link to an excerpt at cprnews.org. 
Up next, how President-elect Donald Trump's gestures and tone on the campaign trail helped propel him to the White House. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. When Donald Trump took the campaign stage this season, it wasn't just what he said that was different, but how he said it and how different voters interpreted it. That's the conclusion of University of Colorado Boulder researchers who studied Trump's campaign appearances during the primary election. From jokes he made about other candidates to his hand gestures, they say his style was rooted in traditions of comedy and entertainment that date back hundreds of years. I'm joined by Kira Hall, a professor at CU and the lead author of a recent academic paper on the subject. Welcome to the program. Great. Thanks to be here. It's great to be here. This idea could be pretty offensive to those who supported Donald Trump, uh, comparing his campaign to comedy. Right. Well, let me begin by saying that my co-authors Donna Goldstein and Matthew Ingram and I work across the fields of linguistics, anthropology, and rhetoric, and As we watched the Republican primaries, like much of the country, we were intrigued by Trump's use of a political style that's very unusual for presidential candidates. So let me start with an example. Um, In his stump speeches, Trump often performed full-body impersonations, comedic impersonations of his political opponents. And this is uh, a kind of derisive humor that we have not seen before in political candidates at this level. One of his most well-known impersonations was of Jeb Bush's low-energy Jeb, right, where he would slump his shoulders, drop his head to one side, droop his arms. Sometimes he even put his hands together like a pillow under his cheek as he mimicked Jeb sleeping. And so we reviewed in detail over, oh, I don't know, 20 stump speeches delivered across the country. And we saw that these kinds of impersonations, or gestural enactments as we call them in the paper, were wildly funny to his audiences. But they also accomplished something that went far beyond these audiences. Um, So by using his body to mock established politicians as boring and lackluster, as constrained and uptight, Trump was able to advance his own candidacy as big, bold, exciting, even spectacular. And so we argue in the paper that it's this unusual political style, the use of gestures and language associated with stand-up comedy and entertainment that captured the attention of the media and brought in more viewers. And of course, in this heavily mediated society we live in, viewers become voters. But many politicians, I I know, point to the crowd to make a point. Clinton used his clenched fist and thumb to to make a point. How is this different? Well, I think um, what is so different about the kinds of gestures that Trump used in comparison to these other politicians is that Trump actively crafted them um, as a kind of Trump brand. And, um, you know, so, yes, we have Obama's fist bump. Um, Maybe uh, if we move outside of the United States, we have um, Chancellor Angela Merkel's diamond gesture that's very famous. Mm. But many of those gestures were interpreted as meaningful by the media after the fact. And so what's different about Trump is his dense use of styles associated with entertainment. So certainly we've had entertainers before in politics, Ronald Reagan, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jesse Ventura. But we argue that Trump differs from these other politicians in that he uses the styles of entertainment intentionally as a political platform. So if I can offer one more example, um, take his use of the pistol hand. 
Um, now, of course, he, he brought this pistol hand gesture, the one that often accompanies the phrase, you're fired, over from his character on The Apprentice, and before that, his engagements with professional wrestling, where competitors craft a persona, a character, uh, a brand, through the use of signature gestures. So when Trump brings this gesture into politics, it's funny. And it's also flashy, showy, ostentatious, when the usual gestures of politicians are pragmatic, emphatic, didactic, right? So Trump incorporates this gesture into his stump speeches um, as a stand-up comedian would, as a part of his comedic routine. So, for instance, in North Carolina, a woman in the audience says, what would you say to President Obama if you're fired, he responds with a pistol hand gesture, and the crowd breaks out into uproarious laughter. Right when he's in Alabama at a stump speech, he sees a plane flying overhead, and he points the pistol hand at the plane and says, oh, that might be ISIS, let's shoot them down. And when he's in New Hampshire, he sees another plane flying overhead, and he says, oh, as he points his pistol hand at the plane, that might be Mexicans. So in each of these cases, Trump is acting like a stand-up comedian, an impromptu comedian who uses props from the social world to incorporate into whatever he's talking about at that moment. But if many people view... Trump's gestures and and statements as unsettling, even vile, how does that help him? Right. Well, you know, our our key point in the paper is that Trump's use of comedic entertainment and of humor allowed him to be interpreted in different ways by the public. So while the right saw him as just being funny, as lampooning the establishment, um, challenging political correctness with humor, the left read his rhetoric as offensive, as racist, sexist, uh, Islamophobic, ableist, and so on. And, you know, I would say that the, the shock that the left now feels is in large part because they never got this point. So the left didn't get that half of the country was reading Trump's rhetoric in a very different way, um, as first and foremost anti-establishment humor instead of all those other things. So I would say that Trump's style spoke more than his credentials in this case. And, and this is not to say that Trump's discourses were not racist or discriminatory. I mean, certainly they appealed to overtly racist groups. But it might explain why you know, so many of Trump's supporters on television now express shock at the idea that Trump is viewed by half the country as racist. Uh, oh, he was just being funny, they say. He didn't mean it. And so this kind of differing of interpretations over humor is what we're particularly interested in in the article. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with Kira Hall, an associate professor of linguistics and anthropology at CU Boulder and the lead author of The Hands of Donald Trump, Entertainment, Gesture, Spectacle. Uh, Trump toned down his style somewhat during the general election, especially toward the end. He used teleprompters more, for instance. Do you see it moderating further now that he's president-elect? Well, um, I mean, we did uh, track, of course, his behavior after the election. And, you know, the kinds of styles that were very excessive um, and 
extraordinary in the Republican primaries did not show up to the same degree after the election. But of course, um, on certain days, he would challenge Hillary Clinton by impersonating her, swooning, for instance. So he did continue that. Now that he has is our president-elect, um, we see even less of these kinds of of, uh, uh, of discourses and of performances. Um, so it's it's hard to predict uh, what is to come. I guess I would say. Was there something about this election, this particular year, that made it possible for Donald Trump to use a style that was so different from what we've seen in the past and win? Well, you know, my my colleagues. Um, uh, across rhetoric and linguistics and anthropology who have written on politics, have argued that the line between political and celebrity culture has eroded under mass media. And we argue in this paper that Trump took this merger of politics and entertainment to a new level. I mean, it's a rare candidate who will come to politics with the background of a billionaire businessman entertainer, as Trump did. Um, and certainly through that, he's changed the American understanding of what is possible. Um, so I think uh, it was a confluence of a lot of factors. But, you know, his use of comedic entertainment propelled him uh, and captured the attention of the media in a way that we have not seen before. Is this different style uh, one we're going to see from, from future candidates? <laughs> Um, well, that's a great question, and, and I, I suppose the question is whether, you know, what Trump did in this election will be viewed as, as successful. Um, you know, we argue at the end of our paper, we make the statement that after the, the spectacle of Trump, politics as usual cannot easily follow, and certainly Trump has expanded the field of what is acceptable in political discourse. So I would say... Um, uh, in a prediction that, yes, I believe we'll see much more of this in the future, even though, again, it's a rare person who will have the, the entertainment, the dense entertainment background that Trump has and, uh, and bring it to politics as I'm a political still, platform. The, I'm still trying to understand. Do you think Donald Trump took this approach on purpose or, or to, to, to win this election, or is this simply Donald Trump being Donald Trump? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's Donald Trump being Donald Trump, but he saw with the response of his uh, his followers and his crowds at his uh, stump speeches just how powerful this rhetoric was. And, and certainly all three authors of this paper would agree that his um, use of comedic entertainment was very powerful. I mean, for instance, um, let me compare him to uh, a clown. Um, what, what do clowns do? They they poke fun at other people, at their bodies, at their fluids, at their stiffness, at their movements. And they make people from all backgrounds and social classes laugh, even though they may be laughing at different things. So some may be laughing at the clown, some may be laughing with the clown, but they're all involved, they're all watching. And this is Donald Trump. So, you know, there's a, a long history of anthropological research on the power of humor. And my co-author, Donna Goldstein, is one of those anthropologists who has written extensively about humor as a weapon of the weak. So throughout history, uh, humor has been used to bring down the powerful classes, the aristocracy, and throughout history, uh, entertainers have risen to powerful positions in transitional moments. Now, what's different about Trump's use of, hum of humor is that, of course, he's a billionaire businessman, 
So here we have humor used, uh, how can I say this, not as a weapon of the weak, but rather as a weapon of the powerful. And, of course, that's probably why half the country sees Trump um, as a bully, uh, because he used a, a, a very derisive form of humor that, again, may be funny to some as anti-establishment, anti-political correctness, but uh, is viewed as very discriminatory and problematic by others. And that's uh, the views of Kira Hall. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much. Kira Hall is an associate professor of linguistics and anthropology at CU Boulder and the lead author of The Hands of Donald Trump, Entertainment Gesture Spectacle. The paper was co-authored by Donna Goldstein, who also teaches anthropology at CU, and Matt Ingram of the University of Texas. You'll find a link to their paper at cprnews.org. Just ahead, the story of restaurant owner Daddy Bruce Randolph, who cooked free Thanksgiving dinners for his neighbors in Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Streets will be blocked off in a northeast Denver neighborhood tonight, and tomorrow they'll be filled with volunteers filling baskets of food for delivery to thousands of needy families and senior citizens. The event is called Feed a Family. It's based on a tradition that started in 1964 when a restaurant owner named Bruce Randolph, better known as Daddy Bruce, started cooking a free Thanksgiving dinner for his neighbors, many of whom were poor. Here's how one man remembers his Thanksgiving with Daddy Bruce. But I remember us going up there and this little guy was uh, out there in this little apron and stuff and he was just like passing out food, making sure everybody had something on their plate, the same portion on their plate. And I remember just that one day, man, I was hooked at that old man's restaurant, you know. And it just happened to be Daddy Bruce. At that time, I was like, I was about 14 at that time. And I just thought, man, what a fantastic guy. That's Vincent Robinson. He appears in a documentary called Keep a Light in Your Window about Daddy Bruce Randolph. I'm joined by the film's producer, Reverend Ronald Wooding, who's also an organizer of this year's Feed a Family event held every year in honor of Daddy Bruce. Reverend, welcome to the program. It's good to be here. Thank you. Bruce Randolph grew up in poor uh, uh, city in Arkansas, became something of an entrepreneur. He ran several businesses in Texas, but ultimately went broke there and moved to Denver. He opened a restaurant called Daddy Bruce's Barbecue. By the time he hosted that first Thanksgiving dinner, he was 63 years old. Why did he decide at that age to start giving out a free holiday dinner to the community? Well, Daddy Bruce had this vision. He always said he wanted to be like Jesus Jesus, and feed 5,000. And when the opportunity came along and he was laid off from his job as a janitor and he was, you know, he moved here and he's working partly with janitorial service mm-hmm. and with his son, you know, shining shoes. And, and he just decided, I want to go back to doing my first love. And that was uh, cooking. And he opened up the restaurant in yeah. the first year, like he gave away 200 meals. And then from the next year, it started there at the restaurant and just kept growing and growing. And at its height, uh, the Daddy Bruce dinner fed more than 5,000 people and had a lot of financial support from corporations. Uh, Daddy Bruce died in 1994 at age 94. But let's hear him back in the day describing the crowd. They come here from Boulder, Colorado Springs, Longmont, and all of them. It'll be a whole bunch of them down here tomorrow. It'll be so many out there in the street you can't hardly walk. 
And it's, it's, you basically hear that in his voice, that excitement in his voice, but feeding all of these people. Uh, was this charity a once-a-year thing for him? No. See, Daddy Bruce was 24-7, and he was giving all the time. Every every day someone came to him and basically you know, needed either a meal. People tell me about the times when they first moved here, didn't have a place to live. Daddy Bruce helped them find lodging and let them come to the restaurant to be able to eat until they could get on their feet. So was this uh, word of mouth? How did people come to find Daddy Bruce and say, hey, I need I need some food? Well, Daddy Bruce was like a magnet. Mm-hmm. I mean, people all over the city knew Daddy Bruce. So basically, it didn't matter who you were. Uh, this was in the 60s. So basically, there was a lot of um, unrest, a lot of issues going mm-hmm. on still with segregation. But Daddy Bruce fed everyone. When you look at the lines of the people, you'll see all ethnic groups out there. And then, then all the people who came to help volunteer. And when, when again, when you see the film, Keep a Light in Your Window, you'll see this and you say, boy, he, he brought people from all groups together. Did you ever meet Daddy Bruce? Unfortunately, no. I moved here in 95 and um, he passed in 94. Yeah. But I, kn- I know his son real well. Uh-huh. Most of my stories, a lot of them came from uh, sitting down talking with him. But I had the opportunity to live in Daddy Bruce's house. In his and, house? Yes. Oh. And, and one of the houses that they used as part of the restaurant, uh, when I moved here and I was working at the church and I wanted to live somewhere in the neighborhood and I asked the realtor and they said, we have a house right down the street. And when I saw it, it had been redeveloped. I said, I'll take it. And I didn't <laughs> know it was part of the restaurant at yeah. the time. Is there a favorite story then about Daddy Bruce you've heard? Uh, can you give us a sense of his personality? Well, you know, when you think about here's a man that – could walk with kings and keep his virtue, you know, could be with crowds and not lose the common touch. I mean, he was just a person that everybody wanted to be around. Every year when they would give out the Entrepreneur Award of the Year, mm-hmm. you know, all the millionaires and things that had money, Daddy Bruce would win the award during that time because people knew he was given from his heart. You know, so that was different. Yeah. So when you think about Pat Bowling, you know, the Broncos mm-hmm. coming down to help you know, people don't know he traveled with the Broncos to those first two Super Bowls and cooked for them, you know, huh. when they were in New Orleans and, and they lost. I said, he might have eaten too much barbecue. But, <laughs> <laughs> but Daddy Bruce went with them. And every Wednesday, uh, he would take food out, uh, barbecue out, ribs out to the uh, practice field, and they would eat free, you know, basically. So during that time, so people said, why do Broncos eat free? I said, well, they weren't paid like they were paid today, so they were glad to get some of those meals. Now, he had a street named after him. How did he take to that, and how did he take to the accolades because of his uh, charitable work? Well, Daddy Bruce was such a humble person. When when you hear about Daddy Bruce, one of the things he used to always say, I'm not a speaker, I'm a cooker. Uh-huh. So he didn't talk a lot, but he had the charisma that would be able to, on a day when he didn't have enough food or whatever for Thanksgiving, he could call restaurants downtown and other uh, uh, businesses, and they would send truckloads of food over to help feed as well. So he just had a great, great relationship with everyone. What inspires your continued work on the Feed a Family event and your work on this documentary? Well, it started, like, see, basically uh, when I moved into the neighborhood and started meeting the people, meeting mm-hmm. the people that used to cook in the restaurant, you know, finding out that Oprah Winfrey came to the restaurant, uh, Donahue, all these, you know, fantastic people that you know from around the country, the Broncos. And it just became like, man, he was a guy 63 years old when he started. And he was able to just to reach out and start doing all these things to 
not only have a street named after him, but mm-hmm. now have a school named after him. So how do you decide who gets the baskets that are going to be assembled this, this Saturday? Well, it's by nomination. Say, for instance, if you had known a family that uh-huh. needed a basket or needed food this Thanksgiving, you could have nominated them. Uh, it comes from churches, uh, nonprofits, uh, housing, uh, so many different places that, you know, that throughout the year people have come to them for help. And they keep the names, and then they will turn them in. You know, in October, and then November, they get a a um, a card to mm-hmm. come and pick up their basket. Uh, we have a great relationship. Uh, Metro Cab delivers to all the seniors and the disabled, oh. so that allows the people that can't get out and can't come to get their baskets to get theirs as well. And how many people will you feed this Thanksgiving? Uh, this year, we are close to right right at five thousand. We have five thousand six hundred and some. Families that have signed up, but you, know, you always have a few that may not show up or whatever, but we know we're doing at least 5,000. And, and I've heard fundraising's maybe been a bit tough this year. Are you concerned about that? Well, you know, this hasn't been the first year we've had a tough year. The first year when we took over, we didn't even start working on it and didn't even know, about, you know we were going to do it until October. Yeah. So God has blessed us every year. We've been able to reach out and through people like yourself who allow us to come on and talk about it, I mean, people have started giving, and uh, we've started a program called 10, 10 by 10, uh-huh. 10 times 10 or whatever. So 10 times 10,000 people. If you give $10, just 10,000 people, that's 100,000. That's where we were, where we show it. Is uh, the spirit of Bruce, Daddy Bruce, there with you? Is he there with you every day? Do you think about him every day? Well, they tell me I've turned into Daddy Bruce because for 14 <laughs> years, every day I've done something talking about him. And when we started doing the film, you know, that brought it in to every day we were working on something. I mean, I've we've interviewed people. We've got, you know, politicians. We've got the governor. We've got the mayor. We've got the senators. We've got all type people, people receiving the baskets. So to get all those interviews, yes, it's, it's been a day-to-day factor. Thanks so much for joining us. Reverend Ronald Wooding is an assistant pastor of Rising Star Missionary Church in Denver. The Feed a Family event is tomorrow in Denver. You'll find a link to all the information about that at cprnews.org. Coming up, more than 30 years ago, the supersonic jet Concorde landed in Colorado. Now one Colorado company wants to bring back passenger travel that's faster than the speed of sound. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. A supersonic passenger jet is being designed and built in Centennial, south of Denver. Boom Technology unveiled a prototype of its X-1B aircraft this week. CEO Blake Scholl says his plane will cut travel times between major world cities in half. What that means is you can catch the first flight from New York to London, make an afternoon meeting, have dinner, and be home and tuck your kids into bed. You're saving a whole day off of a transatlantic trip. Scholl expects the X-1B to travel at more than 1,400 miles an hour when it begins service in the early 2020s. That's faster than its supersonic predecessor, the Concorde, which is no longer in the air. Scholl, who has support from Richard Branson, says his plane will be quieter than Concorde and burn less fuel. Today we've got improved aerodynamics, better engines, lighter materials, and you can build a supersonic aircraft that's way more affordable. And you won't hear sonic booms in the Denver area anytime soon. Supersonic testing will take place at an airstrip in California. Well, let's take this opportunity to play a surprising story from our archives. In the 1980s, British Airways flew several charter flights with its Concorde, and Colorado was on the itinerary. Here's a CPR reporter named Lance Ross from 1985. 
At sunrise at the Colorado Springs Airport, the crew of the British Airways Concorde supersonic transport is already checking over the fast jetliner. The crew is getting ready to fly an empty airplane from the Springs to Kennedy Airport in New York, where it will pick up passengers. The day before, this crew flew from London to Colorado with 100 members of Denver's Ports of Call Travel Club. In the airport dawn, the Concorde sits by the terminal, more than 200 feet long, 84 feet wide, and 37 feet high. It almost looks like a long pencil with wings and a tail, or a large, sleek bird. In the cockpit behind the long-pointed nose are Captain Tony Meadows, co-pilot Chris Orlebar, and flight engineers Peter Ling and Ian Smith. When air traffic controllers and Concord flight crews talk to each other, you'll hear them use the nickname for British Airways, Speedbird. We'll take it on the roll. Everybody ready? Standing by. Yes, ready. The Concord has just been cleared for takeoff from Colorado Springs. Okay. Three, two, one, now. The plane rumbles down the runway with more force and speed than conventional jets. For one thing, it's heavier than most planes. Speed building. The idea is to build as much thrust as possible on the ground and climb as rapidly as possible. 100. Pass checked. With the help of afterburners which glow in the engines, the Concorde makes its loudest noise around the airport. In theory, so it's quieter over populated areas by being high above them. We won. Rotate. The Concorde is now off the ground. B2. Positive climb. Gear up. A CPR report from 1985. 30 years later, Boom Aerospace hopes to bring supersonic passenger service back. For decades, this music has transported people from movie theaters and living rooms to a galaxy far, far away. And now, the Star Wars franchise has made its way to the Denver Art Museum. That's where CPR's arts reporter Corey Jones met a young Star Wars fan. Ten-year-old DJ Morris has seen six of the seven Star Wars films, so it's no surprise he can name most of the characters, like this one. That's Darth Vader right there. You know, this guy. If you only knew the power of the dark side. The Sith Lord causes a lot of mayhem in the saga. So is DJ scared to be in the same room with him? Uh, no. He's just a costume, I'm pretty sure. Oh my god, Abby? (gasps) DJ's sister Abby, on the other hand, is a little freaked out. What just happened? (laughs) He just started doing his weird breathing noise and I was staring at it and it scared me. This Darth Vader suit is one of more than 70 original costumes on display now at the Denver Art Museum. There's Han Solo and Chewbacca, Stormtroopers, Padme Amidala, and more. They all come from the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art in California. But this exhibition is more than costumes. It explores the creative process behind bringing these characters to life. I think it's important for people to see the costumes to see the tip of the iceberg. That's Ian McCaig. He's a concept artist who first jumped on board with 1999's Episode 1, The Phantom Menace. And the reason I like rooms like this is they get to see underneath for the rest of the iceberg. You can see some of McCaig's early sketches and storyboards in different galleries. This is how he helped design many Star Wars characters, like Darth Maul, by first putting pencil to paper. It's really important to know that costume comes from character. Character comes from story. 
Of course, that story comes from the mind of George Lucas. Once the Star Wars creator approves the concepts, then the costume designers take over. In this exhibition, you'll see raw materials and test fabrics. In fact, there's a couple hundred of these ancillary items from the Lucas Museum. Layla French is the director of archives there. I mean, we've been doing Star Wars exhibitions for what, 25 years. This is our first costume exhibition. Other exhibitions have explored topics like mythology and the fake science of Star Wars. They typically appeal to science or interactive museums, but art museums, not so much. This costume design show is kind of an experiment. So I ask French, is this pop culture or is this art? It's both. You know, let's embrace that pop culture can be fine art. This isn't the first time an art museum has embraced pop culture icons. New York's Museum of Modern Art hosted a retrospective of filmmaker Tim Burton's work. A traveling show on musician David Bowie ran at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago. And next year, the Colorado Symphony will perform a concert inspired by the video game Pokemon. Denver Art Museum director Christoph Heinrich says his staff thought long and hard about whether to host a Star Wars exhibition. And in the end... We really try to extend our footprint, to extend the notion of what an art museum can do. Heinrich says to bring Star Wars to the museum was pretty expensive, but he won't give an exact cost. Heinrich did say that he hopes it attracts a lot of visitors. We want, of course, to have the broadest audience possible. We want to be really accessible, but that does not mean we're dumbing down things. Heinrich says this show has parallels to others that have explored Japanese fashion or the creative process of painter Vincent van Gogh, and he likens film to a German expression. Gesamtkunstwerk. That German word boils down to a total work of art, and that's Star Wars, Heinrich says. Conflating all layers of creative expression, design, storytelling, acting, drawing, painting, sound, music. DJ Morris, his sister Abby, and his mom Aisha navigate lightsaber battles and galactic senate meetings at the Denver Art Museum. Aisha Morris remembers when the first Star Wars movie came out in 1977. When you first saw it, when I saw it at 10, we never saw anything like that. In Star Wars, Luke Skywalker must master the Force. And in the real world, because of this exhibition, Morris hopes her kids now understand the power of imagination. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News. Star Wars and the Power of Costume runs at the Denver Art Museum through early April. You can see photos at cprnews.org. And finally today, the Denver band Four Keeps started as a collaboration between its singers when the two taught in China. Now it's a five-piece band that writes fun, light-hearted indie pop. The singers Meredith Pryor and Cody Whitskin are now engaged. They came with the other members of Four Keeps to visit CPR's performance studio. Here's the song, Smile and Continue. Continue. I spin round and round and round and round, 
and continue by the Denver band Four Keeps playing in the CPR Performance Studio. That's our show for this Friday. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner, our managing producer, Rachel Estabrook. Thanks to producers Anthony Cotton, Andrew Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, and Stephanie Wolf. Engineers Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, and Brady McNellis. Follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and connect with us on Facebook at CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great weekend. Smile and continue.